Amen. Thank you, Terry and Teresa. I appreciate y'all singing that very much. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 21. We find our place this morning in God's Word in Revelation 21. If you're using the Pew Bibles provided there for you, it's on page 1004. We're making our way through the bookends of Scripture, our current sermon series. And we've seen that God created all things in the beginning, and that included us. Uh, He created humanity to be in right relationship with the Creator, to be in perfect fellowship and communion. But sin entered the garden, and everything changed. Nothing was left the same. But as we come to the closing bookends of Scripture, uh, we've seen that the enemy will be destroyed. We saw that last week in Revelation chapter 20, and that Christ will reign on this earth, and all who reject the reign of Christ will be tormented forever and ever in a literal place called hell, the lake of fire. This morning we come to the eternal reward for those who don't reject Christ. Instead, they call upon Christ to save them because they know that they can't save themselves. Just like Adam and Eve, we can't cover our sins, but we can cry out to our Creator and our Savior who has clothed us in the righteousness of the Lamb. And Christ has promised us a reward even greater than being in the Garden of Eden. And we often call this heaven. Our reward is heaven. There's lots of opinions, lots of thoughts about heaven. And as the old song says, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. There's lots of thoughts, lots of opinions about heaven. Many people see heaven merely as an extension of their favorite things here on earth. So if you love fishing here on earth... Can't wait till you see the fishing in heaven. Many people think of heaven as being a a never-ending family reunion where the circle will be unbroken and we'll swap stories of days gone by and we'll eat what we want to eat and the calories won't matter. Well, it's not that that's necessarily wrong, but it's just incomplete. And if heaven is not what we think it ought to be, then some people will begin to make suggestions to God about what heaven should be like. Have you ever heard someone make a suggestion to God of what they think heaven should be? Hank Williams Jr. famously saying, If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, then I don't want to go. Well, for him, for Hank, if heaven means that he doesn't get to continue his life of debauchery and sin, then he doesn't want to go there. Others are a little more humble, and they'll say, Well, Lord, you know I'm a country boy, and I've read in the Bible that, the city, the, that heaven is a big city, and Lord, I just ask that you would put me on the outskirts of the city. Some people would say things like that. Well, even though heaven is not built according to our demands, I can promise you that there will be no disappointments in heaven. No one is going to enter heaven and say, huh, this isn't quite what I thought it would be. Many Christians are no longer motivated by the hope of heaven. Preachers don't always preach on heaven very often. We don't sing songs on heaven very often. And uh, many people think that heaven is just going to be an eternal worship service or that we'll simply be what my, my teacher always called cloud potatoes, floating around on clouds, strumming our harps all the day long for all of eternity. Now, let's be honest. That doesn't sound very appealing. That's why a lot of people don't want to go. That's why Christians don't get excited about heaven. If we begin to study the scriptures and we get excited about heaven, well, then some people will say, well, look, you're, you're getting to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But the reality is, is that many believers are so earthly minded that they're no earthly good. 
We ought to set our minds on the things that are above so that we can be most effective here on earth. Now, the Bible certainly doesn't tell us everything that we want to know about heaven. But it does tell us more than most people realize. Heaven will not be boring. Instead, Revelation 22 tells us that it will be a place of variety. And the God who made us to be creative and productive in the garden, He will certainly allow us to be creative and productive, unhindered by sin for all of eternity. But as we're going to see, the greatest thing about heaven is that we will be in perfect fellowship with our Creator and our Redeemer for all of eternity. So with all of this in mind, let's turn our attention to the text of God's Word. We're going to study this morning, not the garden, but the city that is greater than the garden in Revelation chapter 21. Now, I'm going to make reference to pretty much the whole chapter, but uh, the majority of our time is going to be spent focusing on verses 1 through 8 and everything else as how it, it feeds back into verses 1 through 8. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word as I read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second of death. These words are trustworthy and true. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you now asking you to, to help us set our minds on things that are above. Help us to set aside all distractions so that we could clearly understand your word by the help of your Holy Spirit. Bless this time now, Lord, that you would make us more like your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John begins in verse 1 with a vision of the new heaven and the new earth, just as we read about earlier in Isaiah chapter 65. Now, throughout the Scriptures, we're given hints, we're given clues, little bits of information about the restoration of the earth, that the first heaven and the first earth will pass away and it will be restored even better than before. We're told that just as God judged the earth and He remade the earth through that catastrophic flood that we read about in Genesis chapter 6, so too will come the day when God will judge and purge and cleanse the earth through fire. And John doesn't say much about it here in this verse, and so for the sake of time, neither will I. But the one thing that does seem to stand out to John in verse 1 
is that the sea will be no more. That's hard for us to imagine. Our current earth is 75% water. And it's hard to imagine what it would be like to, to see, a, to occupy a new earth where there is no sea anymore. But why might that be significant for John? John is exiled on an island and he's separated by all that he loves, all the people he longs to be with. He's separated by the sea, by the ocean. And John takes courage because he knows that in the new heaven and the new earth, that separation will take place no more. Furthermore, to the Jewish minds, the oceans, the seas, they represent uncertainty and chaos. But there will be no chaos in heaven. There will be no separation. Now, as impressive as the new heaven and the new earth certainly are, John's focus quickly shifts in verse 2 to what is the focus of his vision and the focus of his Uh, this entire chapter, which is the holy city of God. Now, you remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, we began broadly in Genesis 1, and then we narrowed our attention in Genesis 2. Uh, John does the same thing here in verse 1. He's speaking broadly about the new heavens and the new earth. But in verse 2, he focuses his attention in on the capital city, New Jerusalem. We see the capital city of the new earth here in verse 2, which reads, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, ancient Jerusalem has passed away. Millennial Jerusalem has passed away. New Jerusalem, eternal Jerusalem, appears descending from the throne room of God. Jesus told his disciples the night before his crucifixion, that I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will certainly come again to receive you unto myself. Well, Christ's construction is complete. The holy city is ready for occupancy. New Jerusalem comes down prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's not that the city is the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And this is a real city coming down. But the city is prepared in the same way that a bride is prepared for her husband. Husbands, can you remember the day when your bride descended down the aisle? How she was adorned for that moment. She was dressed. She was ready for the occasion. I certainly remember that day in our own marriage. But do you remember that uh, excitement, the anticipation of what was to come? It was all wrapped up in that moment as the bride descended down the aisle. Well, as John sees the heavenly city coming out of, out of heaven, descending from the throne room of God, he can literally see the awe, the anticipation that's wrapped up in that moment. Now, further down in the chapter, John gives us greater insight into the appearance of the city. And so for just a few moments, we're going to leave verse 2. We're going to go further into the chapter, and we're going to see what John tells us about the appearance of the city. What does this city look like? Well, beginning in verse 9, keep your Bibles open and follow along with me. Beginning in verse 9, John gets a longer look at the new Jerusalem. And because the city itself is so closely associated with its residents, with those who are dwelling in the city, the city goes from being described like a bride, as we just saw in verse 2, to the bride itself in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So John gets a, a more detailed vision of the city that is to be the home of all who trust in the Lamb. And we see several things about the city here in these verses. Verse 10, John is carried away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. 
And he sees the city coming down, verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. New Jerusalem is sparkling radiantly with the glory of God. John struggles to to articulate much of what he sees. He compares the glory of the holy city to a rare jewel that is as clear as crystal. What is rare and costly on earth is used abundantly in heaven. Not only is the city glorious in its appearance, but verses 12 and 13, we see the security of the city. Look with me at verse 12. The Bible says it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. Now you remember when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, angels guarded the entrance back into the garden. They guarded it with flaming swords, keeping out all who rebelled against God. But in the new earth, angels stand at the gate, welcoming all rebels who have repented and trusted Christ as their Savior. We continue reading, it says, And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. God's ancient people, Israel, they're represented here in the new heaven and the new earth. But so are the people of God under the new covenant. Verse 14 tells us, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So we see here the people of God from Genesis to Revelation, all here in the new heaven and the new earth. And upon its first appearance, John sees that the holy city is marked by security. It's guarded by angels. It's marked by gates and by foundations. So we're told of the city's security, but we also see the city's size in verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 reads, The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's about 1,400, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. To me, I take that to be a warning to not try to spiritualize this. Whether a human is measuring it or an angel is measuring it is still the same. John is taken up onto a great high mountain and he sees the city. He sees the city in all of its glory. He sees its size. He sees um, the foundations. He's seen the gates. He's seen all of these things here. He sees the, the size of the wall. But pay close attention to what we really begin to understand about this. This city is huge. It's massive. Hang on just one moment. This is what happens when you use technology and it jumps around on you. The gigantic cube-shaped heavenly city. We see it here. It's breathtaking in its size. The city seems to be about 1,400 miles in length and in its width and in its height. And its walls are about 72 yards in thickness, possibly in height. But even if we're wrong in our translation, even if we're wrong in understanding the size, uh, the conversion from stadia and cubits to miles and yards, the point is clear. The city is massive. This gigantic 
cube-shaped heavenly city is breathtaking in its size. And if John had difficulty putting into words the security and the size of the city, he's almost speechless when he comes to the beauty of the city. Listen to the beauty of heaven. John says the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Again, we see a rare, precious jewel on earth. It's being used in abundance in heaven. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold. Can you imagine that? Here on this earth, no matter how fine gold is refined, no matter how many impurities are removed from the gold, gold is never entirely pure. Even gold itself is stained by sin. But in heaven, the streets... And the walls will be paved with pure gold as well, like transparent glass. Gold is not the only gem that we find in heaven. Verse 19 tells us that the foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. John lists 12 verses. Do you see them there in verses 19 through 20? Not only are there 12 types of jewels, there are 12 gates, 12 pearls. This city is simply spectacular in its appearance. And I wish I could say more about it, but I'm convinced that John himself is struggling to articulate with human words what he himself has seen. How much less able am I uh, to articulate with human words what I have not seen? A large portion of this chapter is dedicated to the appearance of the city, but I don't want us to miss what is more important about the city. We see the heavenly city and its appearance, but look back up at verse 3. Verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Throughout the book, John has heard this announcement from a loud voice. Over and over and over, he he hears declaration after declaration from a loud voice. But now this is the last time the book tells us about a loud voice coming from heaven. And perhaps it's the most important declaration of all. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Oh my goodness. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been looking for all the way back since the garden. We talked about this in Genesis, but let's consider it again. God created Adam and Eve to be in perfect communion, perfect fellowship with him. And God dwelt with them in a unique way in the garden. But they sinned. They were kicked out of the garden. Their access to God was hindered. But God, for the glory of his own name, he continued to draw people to himself. He continued to prepare a people for himself. God wasn't done with his story. So God called one man, Abram. And God promised to use Abram as part of his plan for the people of God. And centuries later, as we go through the Old Testament, we see that Abram's family found themselves wandering in the wilderness because they rebelled against their creator, their deliverer, just like Adam and Eve. But God told the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 26, I will make my dwelling among you. God gave them the instructions to build a tabernacle, a tent, God dwelled with his people in a tent. And everywhere God directed them to go in the wilderness, God went with them in that tent. The tent 
or the tabernacle, was a reminder to all of Israel and all who saw them that God dwelt among them. And do you know what this verse literally says? The loud voice literally says from heaven here in verse 3. Behold, the tent of God is with man. He will pitch his tent with them and they will be his people. God will forever dwell with his people. That's the real beauty, the real significance of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. God will dwell with his people. But how is that possible? Remember, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. The first man, Adam, was removed from the presence of God. But the second man, Christ, brought us back into the presence of God. How did he do this? By becoming one of us. John chapter 1. The Word, that is Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. And now, because of what Christ has done... We can dwell with God forever in the presence, in his presence, and be his people. This is the true beauty of heaven. The streets of gold are great. The sights of the city, they're staggering. But what makes heaven, heaven is Christ. We will dwell with our creator, our savior, forever and ever. We will dwell with him. We will be his people God will be with us as our God. This is the wonderful reality of heaven. Heaven will be greater than we can imagine. But did you know there will be things missing in heaven? Things that are so common here on this earth will actually be absent in heaven. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why would there be crying in heaven? Is it because we're focused on our sin when we get there, we see our Savior, and we just think about all the sins that we've done? No. Romans 5.1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ has borne our griefs. Christ has carried our sorrows. We're not crying over our sins when we see Christ in heaven. It's not that we begin to cry once we get to heaven. It's that we've been crying on the way to heaven. And when we get there, our God will wipe away all of our tears. All the tears, all the pain, all the sorrow of this life, God will wipe away in the new heaven and the new earth. And it's not that God wipes away all the tears with one wave of a heavenly handkerchief. No, it literally says that God will wipe away every single individual tear. Remember how Peter told us that we're to cast our cares on God because he cares for us? Our caring creator will wipe away each and every tear. All the pain that you've endured in this life, all all the tears that you've shed over past decisions, every tear that you've cried over lost opportunities and broken dreams and crushed hopes, God will wipe away every tear. And just in case you don't get the point, just in case you're slow to understand, John says there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. Death shall be no more, swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah, even so, come, Lord Jesus. These are some things that will be absent in heaven. And for that, we can give thanks. But there's some more things that are absent in heaven. 
Look down with me at verse 22. Down to verse 22. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No temple? How shocking this must have been for John's original audience. Remember that God dwelt among His people in the tabernacle, in the tent. But then when God brought them securely into the promised land, eventually the day came when a temple was built and God's glorious presence dwelt in the temple. Now you remember that access to God was hindered. So not just anybody could waltz into the temple and say, I want to go into the presence of God. God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies, which, by the way, was a cube-shaped place. You remember the dimensions that we just saw? What are the dimensions of the heavenly city, Jerusalem? They're cube-shaped, just like the Holy of Holies. But now, here's the difference. Instead of the high priest going in once a year on the Day of Atonement, now our great high priest has made it possible by his atonement that all who are in Christ have full access to God, and we can dwell with God forever. There is no temple in heaven because God himself and the Lamb are the temple. The temple facilitated access to God, but we have full access to God through the Lamb. There's something else that's absent in heaven. Look at verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now read that carefully. It doesn't say that the sun and the moon are absent in heaven, but it's saying that we have no need of them to shine on us because all light emanates from the glory of God and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Why did they close the gates to the earthly Jerusalem at night? was to keep out enemies in case they would come and advance upon them during the night. But all enemies have been destroyed. They've been confined to the lake of fire. We saw that in chapter 20. There's no reason to lock the gates. We have no enemies in heaven. There will be no night there. The light of the Lamb, the glory of God will shine eternally, never dimming, never fading, and there will be no night. How is all of this possible? Look with me, go back to verse 4, the end of verse 4. John explains, the former things have passed away. All of these things, the tears, mourning, crying, pain, death, as well as the temple and the need for the sun and the moon, the need to lock gates for protection from enemies, all these things have passed away. Just like the first earth and the first heaven have passed away, all these former things have passed away. And verse 5 says, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The creator of all things. He's seated on his throne. The one who makes us new creations in Christ, he's making everything new. And then in the middle of verse 5, it, it's almost as if John gets so caught up in what he sees that he forgets what he's supposed to be doing. Has that ever happened to you before? He, he's so caught up with what is going on around him, he forgets what he's supposed to do. And so God himself speaks to him and reminds him, write this down for these words. 
are trustworthy and true. You know, much of what is written about the end times, much of what is written about heaven, it's not trustworthy. It's not true. You have eyewitness accounts of heaven, supposedly. You have outlandish interpretations of this book of Revelation that focus more on current events than they do actually on the text of Scripture. Much of what you find written on this book is not trustworthy and true. But God's words are always trustworthy. They're always true. The voice from the throne speaks again in verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God's words are trustworthy and true, and they have come to completion. It is done. As Christ hung on the cross, he cried out, It is finished. It is done. Salvation has been accomplished. And as Christ is seated on the throne, he declares once again, It is done. Salvation is completed. All who are in Christ have safely entered heaven. It is done. All wrongs have been made right. It is done. All tears have been wiped away and all things have been made new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. The book of Revelation begins and ends with Christ identifying himself as the Alpha and the Omega in the beginning and the end. And as you probably know, these are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. But there's far more going on here. We saw all the way back in Genesis 1, before the beginning began, Christ was already there. God has always existed. The beginning begins with God. But He's also the end of all things. Not just the end of the first heaven and the first earth. Not just that He brings all things to completion. But God is the end, the purpose, the goal of all things. All of creation finds its purpose, its meaning, its significance, its end in God. As the old catechism says, what is the chief end of man? That we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Christ is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now we've glimpsed the beautiful appearance of the heavenly city. We've grasped the most significant action of the heavenly city, that God Himself dwells with us. And we've gleaned what is absent from the heavenly city. But we've got to ask, who is welcome in the heavenly city? Look at the middle of verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Who is welcome in the heavenly city? All who are thirsty. All who have recognized their desperate spiritual condition. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who see that they're not righteous, but they thirst after righteousness, they are welcome in heaven. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. He said, everyone who drinks of this water, earthly water, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Christ declares from the throne 
what he's already declared through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Even as we'll see next week in the conclusion of the book, the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears says, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Who is welcome in heaven and the heavenly city? All who recognize their need for Christ and come to him and receive his free gift of salvation. And the one who conquers, the next verse, will have this heritage. And I will be his God. He will be my son. Jesus has promised believers earlier in chapter 2 what it means to conquer. He said, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. The one who conquers will have this heritage. What heritage is it? The heritage of the Son. All of us who are in Christ, we have Christ's inheritance, and He owns all things. The verse says, I will be His God. He will be my Son. This is rich language. It's all throughout Scripture. I wish we could trace it, but we don't have the time right now. But because of Christ, because of the water, He's given us the water of life, we will conquer We will endure, we will overcome, and we will be true sons and daughters of God. But there's one more thing that we have to see about the heavenly city, the holy city that is better than the garden. Who is excluded from the city? We saw how Adam and Eve were excluded from the garden after their sin. Who is excluded from the heavenly city, New Jerusalem? Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And look down at verse 27, the close of the chapter. Look at verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. That is the holy city nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who is excluded from the heavenly city? All who have failed to recognize their need for the Lamb. All who have sought to quench their thirst on their own rather than coming to the spring of the water of life freely. The cowardly, those who have not overcome, Those who have not endured to the end. The ones that Jesus describes in the parable of the soils as the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who when they heard the word, they immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. And they endure for a while, but then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. These are the cowardly who do not enter heaven. The faithless, those who are unbelieving, The detestable, those who are vile, polluted, stained by the sin of the world and have never been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. 
People whose lives are characterized this way. People who are known in this way, not as a thing of the past, but as an ongoing, unrepentant part of their life, their present lifestyle, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You may say, wait a minute, that characterized my life a long time ago. Maybe not so long ago, but Christ has made a difference. Jesus has saved me and made a difference. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Paul told the Corinthian church, he gave a list just like this, and he said, such were some of you. Christ can save you. Christ makes all the difference. Recognize your need for him and come to him thirsty, thirsty for change, and he will freely give you the spring of the water of life. He will make you a new creation. He will be sure that you conquer, you overcome, you endure, and you receive this heritage. He will be your God. You will be his son, his daughter. Make no mistake. Nothing unclean will enter heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. When we began in Genesis 1, it was good. We went to Genesis 2, it was good. In Genesis 3, sin entered the story Ever since then, even as glorious as any truth as you'll find in Scripture, even here in chapter 21, the glorious reality of heaven, God always gives a warning. Repent. All who are thirsty, come. Make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life because you cannot overcome on your own. We've come a long way since the garden. But God Himself has continued to save people. and He is our God. And we are his people. So I want to ask you this morning, are you part of the people of God? Is your eternal destination the heavenly city, New Jerusalem? If not, then today, repent and trust Christ as your Savior. I'd be glad to talk with you about that further in a moment or afterwards. But if you are in Christ, you're bound for the promised land as we sang. Will you allow the glorious truth of heaven to motivate you to greater faithfulness here on this earth. We've fallen a long way from the garden, but let us fix our eyes and our hearts on the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Let's pray.